right, so last week we were in Song of Solomon chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This week we're going to get through, I don't know what we're going to get through, but we're going to start off and continue in verse 4. Hopefully we can finish the chapter, I don't know. There is a lot to cover. Doesn't seem like much is going on, but there's a lot to cover. And so last week when we started this book, there was a couple things that we kind of got straight before we jumped into it. The first thing is that we understand that this is poetic, right? That this, there's a lot of um, symbolism, there's a lot of pictures, there's a lot of uh, comparisons, and it's very descriptive. And what we're going to see is it's kind of, it's not in order, it's not chronological, it's not the beginning of a relationship between a man and a woman, and then building upon that, and then, you know, they get married, and they have kids, and they live happily ever after. Like, that's not the the picture of this, okay? It actually takes little snapshots, if you remember that. And so that's why it's kind of hard to read. And so you, you got to understand that to get a good understanding of the entirety of it. And within this song, there are three people or three characters, I would say, um, that we read about and that are expressing their, their feelings, their emotions, their thoughts, their experiences. The first one is the Shulamite. You remember her. She's the young maiden. She's the woman. Then we've got the king, or the beloved, right? And many would think that this is actually Solomon himself. We're not clear if that's the case. Um, doesn't really matter, I don't think, but we do know and we do believe that this was written by Solomon because we see that in verse 1, right? The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, right? And how many songs do we know that Solomon wrote in the entirety of his life? There's an exact number. One thousand and what? Five. One thousand and five, right? And we start off in verse 1 with saying this is the song of songs, right? This is his number one hit. This is the best one. It's like saying, again, it's like the Holy of Holies, you know, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the song of songs. I wrote 1,005, but this is the best one. And we have it for a reason, right? It's in the canon of Scripture for a reason. The Holy Spirit allowed it to be in here for a reason. Remember, all Scripture points to Christ. It's always about Jesus, but here, what we see is that there's also a picture of um, biblical understanding and biblical principles to love, right, to relationship, to marriage. And what we know and what we find out from the very beginning, the first covenant marriage, it was to glorify who? God, right? It was all about the purpose of God. Because what we see throughout Scripture is that God is described as the bridegroom, right? And we as the people are described as the bride, Right? And there's this very descriptive um, sense of that all throughout Scripture. And there's going to be a time um, where there's a wedding and a wedding feast, and it, there's going to be a huge celebration. And it ta- you know, talks about Jesus going to prepare a place for us, very similar to uh, the, the uh, Israeli customs of, of their um, marriages. And so there's going to be a time and place where we will be celebrating with Christ, who is our bridegroom. And then even the description between... Um, Christ and Israel, right? And he oftentimes describes Israel as, as like a harlot, right? As, you know, as in Hosea, you know? And that's what Israel did is like they, they were always, I won't say always, but more often than not, they were unfaithful. And what did God do? Did God give up on them? No. He made a covenant. He made a promise with them, right? And he would not break that covenant nor break that promise, even though one side of the relationship was unfaithful. Israel has been unfaithful, and God has still loved them. He's restored them. He's redeemed them. And, that's, and we see that even with us as people. And so 
we get a few of those things as we kind of try to understand Song of Solomon. Um, so the Shulamite, the woman, she starts off for, oh, the third character, I forgot. So we've got the Shulamite, the woman, we've got the beloved, the king, the man, and then we've got the third character, which is the daughters of Jerusalem. And we kind of look at them like, like a chorus, right? So you've got these two people singing back to each other, speaking to each other. Then you've got the chorus that comes in. And, they're, and, and how to understand this is like they're watching all this play out, right? They're kind of like witnesses. They're, they're seeing this happening. And so when they, what they see happening, they express what they see and what they feel as they watch. So in verse 2, the Shulamite speaks to the man, to the king, and he, she says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. And so one of the things that we looked at last week is in verse 2 is that she's not a weak woman. She's not passive, right? But she's obedient and she's submissive. But we're going to see this week, we know she's not weak or passive because we're going to see she's actually strong and hardworking. Okay, and that's, those are very good characteristics, not just within a woman, but anyone. But we see this within this young woman here. And she says here, because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth, therefore the virgins love you. And so she's saying about the ointment, like we talked about this last week, right? Good smelling fragrances are appealing, correct? Bad smelling fragrances do what? They, they, they push you away, right? They don't, they don't draw you near. You're like, whoa, boys locker room stinks. Youth room after dodgeball stinks. All the guys after dodgeball stinks. All the girls after dodgeball they stink too, right? So we all have the ability to stink, but we all have the ability to smell good. And so she's saying, look, you smell good. And remember, we talked about that they didn't take like daily showers like we do. So what they do is they would pour ointments on themselves, that fragrances to smell good, right? But then she equates his name, right? His reputation, his character, that's what she's speaking of, to good smelling ointment. And so what she's basically implying by continuing on by saying, therefore the virgins love you, is that these, these virgins, who is the, we would assume here, the daughters of Jerusalem, the chorus, the, the people who are watching, the witnesses, they love him, right? Not in a romantic type of love, but they recognize that in his character that he's a good person. That it's, he's not just treating her a certain way to get something for himself, but rather it's in his very nature, it's who he is, it's his character, whether it's with her or with a group of people, whether she's there or not, he's the same person. And I don't know, listen, I don't know if we could say that with many, many young men and women today, where we, sometimes you guys get into relationships too early and you fall into this, you know, romanticism with it and you get head over heels and, you know, you get the butterfly effect and, you know, you, uh, you get tunnel vision, like I said last week, and so all you see are the good qualities, but oftentimes what happens is sometimes one person, if not both people, there's a selfish type of love or desire that comes with that relationship. And so you treat the person a certain way to get something, and we know that that's not love, right? God loved us when we were yet still sinners. He loved us when he considered us enemies. He considered us ungodly. We had nothing to offer him. We were disgusting, and yet he loved us. Right? That's the agape type of love. And so oftentimes, again, young people, they want something. They want something. And we got to be careful of that. Because there's many people who will manipulate, 
They'll be a certain way around you, but that's not their true character. And so she's able to say his true character is the same when he's with me one-on-one or whether I'm there or not and other people see him. I think that's really important. Now, in a, to a sense, like, we can't base everything off of what other people tell us about someone, right? But also, we have to listen to godly wisdom when it comes to us, right? When somebody comes to you and says, and you got like three or four different friends that say, hey, you know, we don't have a good feeling, right? He's a certain way at school. I know you don't go to school with him, but when he's at school, he's not the same way when he's around you, or vice versa with a, with a girl, right? Or, hey, you know, the way that he's around you or she's around you is not the same that he or she is the way online, right, through social media. And now, like, we can buck up in our pride and get sensitive because we're infatuated with, infatuated with that person and think, I'm not going to listen to you. You're just jealous, right? We go through all those stupid things. But listen, if someone's walking with the Lord and they have, they have knowledge and they have godly wisdom, we need, to, we need to listen to it. We need to submit to it. And so she does that here. Again, your name, your character, your reputation is good. And that's why the virgins love you. That's why these, these ladies who, from the outside, they see and they like you. And she says here, draw me away. And that's where we ended last week. Draw me away. And I love that because here she's given the initiative to Solomon or to this young man to draw her away. She, she's not interested in something that just lasts for a moment right, whether it's a night, a week, or a month, she wants him to, to put in the work, put in the effort, right, to draw her away. She wants his affection. And I love that because it's the same thing with Christ. Like, he draws us to him, right? Like, he, he completely draws us. Again, it was nothing of our own accord. We would not want or desire Christ without him first pursuing us. He put in the work. He put in the effort, and because we've seen it, because he's shown us the greatest extent of love, which is to lay down your life for someone, it now has given us a desire to be drawn away by him, and he doesn't force us. Love, in any sense, is never forced, never manipulates, never forces you to do anything. And so what Christ does for us, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he never forces us to love him, right? He gives us, he gives us opportunities, he gives us options. We can reject him. We can be drawn, drawn away to him. And I love that because that's what the Spirit of God does. He reveals himself to us, and through that, we become, I want to say infatuated, but, but we recognize his beauty, and it draws us away. The grace, the mercy, all, all of his reputation, who his name, like God's name's important, right? God's name's important, right? It is. And God has many different names, and a lot of those names are his attributes, and so we, we recognize those they are beautiful to us. Uh, Psalm 110, verse 3 says, Draw me, else I move not. Overpower the world in the flesh, that they would draw me from thee. You know, there's always something, I think, drawing us. It can either be the things of the world or it can be Christ. But each one has its different consequences or pros and cons. Well, actually, God doesn't have any cons. I don't want to say that, right? But God draws us. The Spirit draws us never forces us. And so the daughters of Jerusalem, the chorus here, they respond in verse 4 by saying, we will run after you. Again, they're looking at everything that's happening. They're seeing the back and forth. They're observing and they're celebrating the love between the maiden and the young man here. And what they want to do is they want to see what continues, what happens, right? They want to see the next scene. They want to fast forward. They want to skip the chapter, read the end. I want to know what's going to happen. They say, we will run after you. 
And so the Shulamite, she responds here in verse 4, and she says, the king has brought me into his chambers. I think there's two ways of looking at this, because many people think that this is their wedding night. I'm not so sure. But I think there's a deeper meaning to this other than like a physical sense of drawing, him, drawing her into his actual chambers. I think what he's doing is he's actually opening himself up. Right? He's being vulnerable. Have you ever been vulnerable with somebody? And it's, it can be hard, right? You can, to open up and share, you know, some hard truths or experiences or th- I don't know what it is. But to be vulnerable with somebody is, is to be intimate, right? And I'm, I'm not talking about in a physical sense. I'm talking about opening yourself up like in, in, a, in a verbal sense, communication, talking, right? Spending time together. And so I think that's what's happening here as the king has brought her into her, his chambers is that it's poetic and it's symbolic of, okay, well, he's welcomed me into the affections and the secrets of his heart, right? He's being vulnerable here. He opens up to her. He allows her in. And why does, she, why does he do that? Because, again, it's intimacy. It's, it's getting to know someone. How else can you know someone unless both of you are open and vulnerable with each other, right? If you don't fully share the extent of everything that you're feeling or that you've ever experienced, how can you truly know someone? Right, because in essence, if you don't completely open up, you're holding back and you're hiding stuff. And then you don't know the person to their full extent. And what I'm so appreciative of is that God has drawn us in and he's opened himself up so that we can know everything that we're capable of knowing, right? Everything that we're capable of knowing, everything that we need to know about him. He's literally an open book, (laughs) right? Is God not an open book? Did God not give us his spirit, right? In Corinthians, it says, who knows the things of man except for the spirit of man? And then he goes on to say, well, who knows the things of God except for the spirit of God? And he says, you have been given the spirit of God, right? Well, what does that mean? That means that we can know by the spirit of God and his word together, combined with that, he will lead us into all truth. Into the truth of what? Well, Jesus says, I am the truth. So that means he's leading us into understanding more of who God is. Right? There's that vulnerability, the openness of who God is. But we have to make the effort. Right? I mean, in God's, again, God does not force. He just allows. And he says, look, I've opened myself up. I've welcomed you into my chambers. If you want to come, you can come. There's no manipulation. There's no you know, guilt tripping. There's no forcing. It's if you want to know more about Christ, then get to know him. It's, it's your move. The ball's in your court. But so many of us will say, man, I, I, don't, I just don't feel like I'm growing. I don't feel like I understand God the same that I did yesterday. It takes effort. Does it not take effort in a relationship in life? Right? Do you get to know somebody by, you know, thanking them for your food once a day? <laughs> no, you don't. How do you get to know someone? Talking. Right? Communicating. And God's given us that wonderful ability, again, through his word to know the things that he's written to us, that he's spoken to us, right? He is the word. John 1, 1 says that. And we have the ability, too, to talk back, right? We have the ability to, to listen. But communication is so key, guys. Whether it's, I mean, especially within our relationship with Christ, abiding in him, but also just in relationships. I told you guys about, our, you know, Whitney and I, I don't know how much you guys know about our relationship when we started but we, we talked nonstop. And why did we do that? So we could get to know each other, 
right? I, I mean, I knew what she looked like. I saw her, so that, I mean, that was that, but I didn't, I didn't know everything else, right? So we talked and talked and talked, and I'll get to this later on, but it's important that there is a fine balance, especially within our relationships here on earth. With God, there is, there is never a time where you are spending too much time with God, right? Like, that's never, ever the case. But when it comes to our relationships, like, especially when you're, when you're courting or you're dating or you're seeking after a spouse, like, there can be a time when we put them on a pedestal and they become an idol and we spend way, way too much time and way too much energy and way too much focus on them that, again, they become an idol, that they, it, they become what God says to us and don't have any other gods before me. And we're going to say, you know, that girl's not a god, but if that's what you, in essence, worship, if that's all you think about, if that's all you're worried about, if that's all your mind, you know, can wander about, and that's you spend all your time on, well, then you've, in essence, placed them up in the, in the place of God, right? And so we got to be careful of that. But again, communication, speaking, uh, vulnerability here, um, it allows this young maiden to come into um, his chambers. And he goes on to say, or the... Um, the daughters of Jerusalem, in verse 4, they said, We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. And the Shulamite responds, Rightly do they love you. And she wasn't mad. She wasn't passive-aggressive. She's like, of course they love you. Right? And again, this is not in a romantic, romantic sense. It's not in a sense where they're like, you know, going to be a homewrecker and they're trying to take him from her. No, they, they recognize his goodness. Again, they recognize his character. You can do that without any type of romantic love involved in it. And so, again, she thinks it makes perfect sense that those nearest to him, that those who observe him, love him, right? He, he's simply to be admired and adored. Like, he's recognized for his character and for um, his name. So in verse 5, she continues on. She says, I am dark but lovely. Anybody have the King James Version? What does it say, Patrick? He says, I, am black. I am black, but lovely. I am dark, but lovely. And I'll explain what that means. It's, it's a good thing. But in this time, in this, listen, you guys are so dumb. Let me keep reading. She says, I am dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not look upon me. She says, because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made the keeper of the vineyards. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. And so here what she is saying is that she has been working in the sun so long, and there's a reason why she's been working in the sun, that her skin has become tanned, that it's become darker than what most people were accustomed to. And what was in this time, listen, I need you to understand this. In this time and in this culture, if you, if you had dark skin, it meant you were in the, the peasant class. You were in the working class. Because ultimately what you were doing is you were working in the fields. You were working outside, right? Whatever it was, whether it was a vineyard or something else, if you were working outside, right? Like, I don't know if you guys saw me on Sunday after the baptism, but I was like insanely red because I got sunburned, right? But over time, that turns into a tan, right? You get a little bit darker. And that's what she's saying, right? She's been outside working and her skin has darkened. 
Well, why? Because she's been working in the vineyards. But why has she been working in the vineyards? Well, because her brothers made her do it, right? She's been tending to their vineyards, right? They were angry, she says. They made me the keeper of the vineyards. It wasn't her responsibility, but through her submission. And again, this is not a weakness. We actually see her strength displayed in this, also her obedience, right? So she's obedient and submissive to her brothers, but she's strong enough to work in the fields. And again, working is a good characteristic within someone. Would you not agree? Would, being lazy is actually a sin. And God speaks against it many times within the word. And Paul even says, if you don't work, then you're not deserving of your, your food. If you don't want to work, well, then you're not eating dinner. And I would agree. I tell my kids the same thing. Like, if you don't want to do what you want to do, then, then you're not going to eat right? And well, what does that do? Well, it, you eventually get hungry and you want to eat, so you start working, right? If, if you have the ability, right? We're not talking about these anomalies where somebody doesn't have the physical strength or they're sick or they don't have legs. We're not talking about that. God's obviously compassionate about those things, but he's saying if you have the ability and you're just lazy, well, then you're not deserving of your wages, right? When well, your wages is nothing, you shouldn't get anything. You should go work for it, and so working is a good thing. And again, we're in a time and in a day where people don't want to work. They don't want to put in the effort. And so she did. But she thinks, and she says this, that because of that, I've been darkened. I've, I've gotten tan. And again, in that time, for economic reasons, if you had darker skin, it meant that you were, again, in the working class. But if you had fairer skin, like pale skin, right, that meant that you were in the, you know, uh, the upper class. And what we've come to find out is that that has nothing to do with, with beauty. Right? And she's able to say this. She's able to say, I am dark but lovely. She says, I'm dark but I'm beautiful. I've worked but I'm beautiful. And again, she had to look after her brother's vineyards. And what she says at the very end, I don't know if you caught this, but she says, my own vineyard I have not kept. What does that mean? That means she did this at the expense of her own beauty. She wasn't able to keep up with her own vineyard. And I think what you see here, and I don't want to overlook this, is that there was a little bit of self-doubt within her own appearance. And I think that shouldn't be overstated. And I think there's many of us, if not all of us, struggle with that. We struggle with our appearance. I mean... Goodness, just go watch a commercial. It's always about some type of new anti-aging, um, I don't know. It's always about something that has to do with your appearance. Weight loss, this, weight loss. I mean, there's a difference between trying to be healthy and just trying to change your appearance. And so she had this struggle, right? She had this self-doubt when it, when it came to her appearance. And, and I, I like it to an extent. And let me explain it like this. I like it to an extent because it somewhat humbled her. But it didn't go so far, her self-doubt didn't go so far that she couldn't recognize her own beauty. Right? Because what she ends up saying is she says, I'm lovely. She does recognize her beauty. Because I think sometimes there is no fine balance. And there's many people who just, they just run on their appearance. And we're prideful about it and arrogant about it. And honestly, that makes, makes it seem <laughs> less unattractive. And so here she had this self-doubt, but again, she could recognize, too, that she was lovely. She had a level head. She was humble, 
but she recognized her own, her own beauty. And so she had this darker complexion because she was a working woman. She wasn't a princess, right, in, in the sense of the culture here. But, but to the young man's, to his eyes, she was a princess, right? She was the best. He's going to say later on that she's the fairest woman of them all. She's the most beautiful woman. And I love that because, you know, you guys know the, the, the cliche, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. And that's so true. Like what someone thinks is not beautiful, there's someone else that does. And I love that because there's at, le- there's at least someone out there that thinks someone else is beautiful, no matter the appearance. And then what we come to find out later on is that appearances aren't that much. There's something, but they're not everything, right? There's something, but they're not everything. And so here she's a hard worker. She's obedient. Again, it's just the same example of Ruth that we talked about earlier on, right? Ruth was gleaning, but she worked hard, right? She had probably dirt all over her face. She was, you know, not wearing the best of dresses. And do you know what? She still caught the eye of a man, right? He still saw her as beautiful. But more than her beauty, what did he see? Her work ethic. And, and he was attracted by that. He recognized that. And what we see later on is that, well, yeah, then she was able to take a bath, remember this, and put on uh, fragrance and put on a dress, and, and, and she made it, you know, she made herself available to um, Boaz, and Boaz recognized that, and they ended up getting married, right? So Ruth worked hard. Rachel worked hard, right? Moses' wife, Zipporah, she worked hard. Proverbs 31, it talks about strengthening her arms. She's considered a hard worker, these are good and attractive things, not only within a woman, but within a man. So she goes on in verse 7. She says to her beloved, Tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? So essentially what she's doing is she's trying to find him. She's looking for him. But what she doesn't want to do, listen, hear me out and she doesn't want to wander from flock to flock looking for him because that has the appearance of a woman who is, and I'll try to put this rightly, um, loose. A woman who is just open to anyone and anything that can come around, right? But she has integrity, and so she doesn't want that appearance. Even though that's not her intention, she doesn't want that appearance, and I think that's so key, ladies and guys, that even though our intentions may be right, sometimes we do have to think about how things may appear from the outside, right? That we, we make sure that we abstain from every appearance of evil. And sometimes it has to do with how we pursue relationships, right? And this is what she doesn't want to happen. She doesn't want to play the seductress or the prostitute. I'll say it this way. Right, because this is actually expressed in the, in the Old Testament with, I um, can't remember her name. Who was the lady that tricked Judah? She's in the Bible. She's in the lineage of Jesus. Tamar. Tamar, thank you. She did that. What did she do? Well, she veiled herself because that's what prostitutes did. They, hide, they hid their identities. Like, it's almost like creeping in the darkness so nobody can see you. But God tells us to walk in light. Right? Well, why do we walk in light? Because we have nothing to hide. So she doesn't want, again, that appearance from others to think by her veiling herself. She says this, 
For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? Why should I go from flock to flock veiling myself? Just tell me where you are. Right? She doesn't want that appearance, again, of being loose or casual. Right? But she's, she's in the pursuit of a genuine relationship with the purpose of it ending in marriage. Right? So she wants to do things the right way. She wants to do it in the light. She doesn't want any appearance of evil. And I think, again, I think that's a beautiful quality within anyone. So she says, in verse 8, if you do not know, or he says, I'm sorry, if you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd tents. So again, she asks the question, where are you? And so he responds, look, if you don't know, O fairest among women, that's the first thing he says. And I love this. Listen, I really love this because this is one thing that I try to do within my own marriage, is that here she is, and she has a little bit of self-doubt within her appearance, right? She still recognizes her beauty, but she still struggles with it. And what is he intentional to do? What is the very first thing he says? You're the most beautiful woman. You're the fairest of them all. You guys know Snow White, right? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? I got to tell you the truth. Well, to him, in his eyes, she was the most beautiful woman of them all. So what does that do? Well, that reassures to her, right? That reassures to her that he truly believes and thinks that she is the most beautiful in his eyes. And what do you think that does to her self-doubt? Probably breaks it away a little bit, right? It, it, it give her, gives her some confidence. And so again, what he does here is he tells her, where to go so that she can take her own goats and that she can visit the tents, right? He's responded to her interest by taking a step forward and furthering the relationship as they, they want to spend more time together because ultimately that's what it is. I want to know where you are. Well, here I am. Again, I want to spend time together. And so what he's doing is he's inviting her to come and visit him while he's working and he welcomes her presence. He wants her companionship. I love that because, again, before you can truly get to know someone, you have to spend time with them. You have to communicate, right? I, and, again, I told you guys about my wife and I. We lived in, in different, um, gosh, we felt like we almost lived in different states. We lived so far away. We met in youth group, and we went to different schools, but we lived, like, 45 minutes away. So we, didn't, we only got to see each other at church. And so to, to get to know each other better, and we didn't have cell phones either. So bear in mind, like, there was that hindrance. We couldn't just call each other. We couldn't text each other, so we ended up writing each other letters, right? And it was through these letters that we truly got to, to know each other better. And then as time progressed and, you know, uh, technology progressed, they made cell phones, and um, we were able to call each other. But actually, <laughs> we never had cell phones until we were like 18, I think, maybe older. And then what ended up happening is I had to call our home phone, right? And there's only one phone in the home. And you know who would answer the phone every single time? Or you know who wouldn't answer the phone every time I called? Whitney. Whitney. So it would either be her brother or her dad. And be like, hey, it's Jeffrey. Can I talk to Whitney? And they're probably like rolling their eyes thinking, okay, here's another five-hour conversation. And there's only one phone, so they take up the line. I don't know if anyone else is calling, and we can't make any calls out. So we did that. We talked. We communicated. We, we couldn't be together physically because we were so far apart but we got to know each other. And I believe truly that's what's happening here with the young maiden 
and with a young man is that they want, to, they want to spend time together so that they can grow in their companionship, that they can grow in their friendship, that they can grow as they're vulnerable towards one another and as they communicate. But I want to share this again, like I said earlier, that it's so important that we don't get too consumed with each other because Whitney and I learned that too. We got way too consumed with each other that we became our idols. And what ends up happening is we lost sight of Christ. And when you lose sight of Christ, that just opens up the door for your flesh. It opens the door for the enemy. It opens the door for consequences. And listen, I'll tell you this. God can redeem anything. Did you know that? Anything. Literally anything. He can restore and redeem anything. But that doesn't mean that the consequences, the memories, the things that we have done, that doesn't mean that those automatically go away. Sometimes they stay with us for life, and we have to deal with them for life. And so we, we have to be mindful of that. The decisions you make, like you have to be very intentional and very wise in some of the decisions that you make. And so it's important that you don't lose sight of Christ because then you become vulnerable, like we talked about Sunday, to deception, to falling into sin. And sometimes when we fall, we don't want to get back up, but we have to get back up. And so it's important that we don't put the other person before Christ. And that's not just when you're like 19, 20 years old. You can be 45 and married for 20 years and still do that. To not put my wife or her husband on a pedestal where we put Christ first because that's when we make idols. And we can become idols for each other. Again, an idol, and I'll, I'll describe it like this, it's like a person or a thing that consumes your thoughts, your words, your time, your energy, and even your money, other than God. Remember, God says, you shall have no other gods before me, right? And we always think, well, you know, a god's got to be like some idol that we make, right? Some, we got to fashion something with our hands. Well, really, we can make anything an idol, and sometimes we forget that it can be a person, and it can even be a good person, right? A person that is, is, is you know, we have a good relationship with, that's a, that's a good person within our life, like our spouse. It can even become our kids or our parents. And so there was a time, I remember there was a specific day my parents were gone. I was the only one home. I lived maybe, I don't know how far I lived from church. It was a long way. And I was so, I had, I had such tunnel vision. Hear me out. I had such tunnel vision that all my other logical brain cells weren't working. Do you know what I'm talking about? You probably know what I'm talking about. You're a bunch of teenagers. So I thought from like 15 miles away that I could bike to church. Yeah. <laughs> Because my parents were gone. And you know what? I was like, I love Jesus so much. I'm going to grab my bike that has a flat tire, and I'm going to bike to church because I love him. Do you think that was my intention? You guys know the story. That wasn't my intention. I wanted to see Whitney. And I tried it. I tried it. And it took me 15 minutes just to get out of my stinking neighborhood. And I'm like, I, there's no way I'm making it. I lived in Holly Springs. I was trying to get to Apex. Like... But again, I was, I was so blinded by my naiveness and my, my tunnel vision and my affection that I was like, one, I was going with, with the wrong intention, and then secondly, I just lost all logic. I was like, no way, Jeffrey, you're trying to like, bike on the highway? Like, <laughs> like, thank God, listen, thank God I really had a flat tire, so I, I, I tried it, and then a like, little bit of common sense hit, in, and maybe the Holy Spirit just slapped me across the face and said, don't do this, dude. Well, actually, what kicked in was, like, my legs got tired. <laughs> so I was like, no, I can't do it. So I went to my neighbor that I barely knew, and I was like, hey, can you give me a ride to church? And he did it. <laughs> I made it. I made it to church. 
I was like 16, 17 maybe. But I say that, listen, I say that because, again, you know, it, it can become really dangerous when we, when we put this upon a person and we put them on, on a pedestal and we start to, to rely on them more than we would rely on God, right? That we go to them more than we would go to God, right? That I would find my fulfillment, my satisfaction in them rather than truly finding my fulfillment and my satisfaction within God. And again, this, this could be in a relationship that you're pursuing or it can even be in marriage, Right, that, that sometimes, you know, we, we stumble and we fall in our marriages where I'm trying to find my fulfillment and joy and satisfaction within my wife when she wasn't really created to, to, to completely fulfill that, right? I mean, really, that's what, what Christ should do, whether I'm married or whether I'm single. Whether I'm, I'm, I'm pursuing a relationship or whether I'm single, Christ has to be the ultimate fulfillment for everything in my life, whether that's contentment, joy, whatever it is. And so... He responds here in verse 9 as he continues to speak. Or did we continue this? Or did we finish this? Where were we? In verse 8? He says, If you do not know, O Pharisees among women, fall in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. He says, I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Wow, what, like, man, that was, that was romantic. You are like one of the horses. Like, wow. Thanks, babe. Thanks for comparing me to a horse. And then he's like, why the long face, right? No. <laughs> but what I like here is that there's, again, as we talked about before, there's really good communication going on. And I think part of it is them being vulnerable. Part of them is wanting them to know each other. And good communication, and it's one of the things that we talk about in our premarital discipleship with couples who are about to get married, is communication. We spend a whole lesson on it. Communication is so important. I remember when I got married, my father-in-law told me the same exact thing. Communication is so vital between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife. I mean, it's important in any relationship, but we're talking about here in marriage. And communication is not just speaking, right? But it's listening. It's, it's how you listen. And communication, it's about connecting the heart. It's about connecting the mind. And oftentimes, it's about connecting those two things with one another. There was a lady who went to visit an attorney, and she said to him, I want to get a divorce from my husband. So the attorney looked at her and said, well, do you have grounds? She said, no. Uh, she said, well, we have about two acres. And so he said, no, lady. What I mean is, does he beat you up? She says, no, I get up before he does. And so he said, no, lady, do you have a grudge? And she says, well, no, we have a carport. And frustrating, the lawyer, he finally looks and says, why do you want to get a divorce? And she said, because we can't seem to communicate. <laughs> Communication is so key. It is so vital and it's so important. And so, he says, do you have grounds for divorce? That's what he's saying. And she says, no, we have two acres. You guys get it. Communication is important. And so again, we see, as he says in verse 8, that he says, look, you're the fairest among women. But then he continues on with this, with this affirmation of her beauty, her physical beauty. And again, we, we've talked about this, that, that physical beauty is not bad, right? But when we think that it's the only thing or it's the main thing, that's, that's when we start to run into trouble. But here he's, again, affirming her, her physical beauty. And what he's doing is he's actually communicating it to her. He's, he's verbalizing it. Like, I think that's important. I think it's important to, to tell, look, your spouse, like, you're beautiful. 
right? That's, that's such a comforting thing. That's such a, an affirming thing. You know, and we're going to see it later on that she does the same thing for him. Now, she doesn't say you're beautiful, right? But she says you're handsome, right? To me, you're handsome. And, and, and we need that. We need that affirmation sometimes to be said, even though we may, sometimes we don't, we don't say it. But sometimes we have to say it because the other person needs to hear it. And so he does that, right? In verse 9 and 10 here, he's affirming her physical beauty. And what he's saying here is, he says, look, I've compared you my love to my filly among Pharaoh's chariots. And again, you're thinking, well, why would you compare your wife to a horse? Why would you compare a woman to a horse? That doesn't seem good. But again, in the context of it, listen, Pharaoh's chariots were the best. They had the best horses, the most exquisite horses. And these horses were decorated. They were beautiful, right? They were the best in the kingdom. And so this analogy doesn't fit in our culture because, again, guys, nowadays, don't use this line on a woman. It'd be like, wow, you look like the most beautiful horse I've ever seen. That doesn't work. But in their culture, it worked. It was, it was a compliment, right? Even amongst the most beautiful, she was the most beautiful. And so what we find out is that in that time, they didn't use female horses to pull chariots, right? They didn't use the filly. They didn't use the mare. What they used, they used the stallions. They used the male horses. And what he's saying is that, you know, when there's a bunch of stallions, it's kind of like this, when there's a bunch of stallions and they're in a pasture and you, you kind of want to get them riled up and you want to get them moving from, from one place to another, from point A to point B, well, what do you do? You stick a mare in there. And what do they do? Well, they start to lose their minds. And I think that's what kind of Solomon's kind of implying here or the, or the young man's implying is like, look, like when I'm around you, I kind of lose my mind. Like your beauty it's beyond what I, can, what I can describe and what I fathom. But what he says here in verse 9 that we kind of glossed over is he calls her my love. Or in other versions, or what the true meaning of the word means is darling. He says my darling. He calls her his darling. This word darling has to do with, with a companion. It means a companion. It's indicative of a relationship headed toward marriage. And I like that, and I wanted to point that out because it's so important that the intent of a relationship should always be with the end goal of marriage. And that's not to say, hear me out, I'm not saying that just because you get into a relationship that it should end in marriage. Does that make sense? Because it may not work out. I don't know. I'm not some type of genie that knows everything. But what I do know is that we should go with the intent because that saves us from a lot of hardship. It allows us to do it in the proper and right way that way, once we do get married, that the things that God has designed within a marriage can be done in the right context. And then they become beautiful. They become good. There's no consequences, right? There, there's no hurt. There's no pain. There's nothing that we have to deal with later on in life because, again, we've done it in the right way. It goes on in verse 10. He says, Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. Now, again, this is a little weird to us because you're like, who compliments a girl's cheeks? We're talking about, like, these cheeks. The facial cheeks, guys. It's not something that you would do today either, right? Like, oh, my gosh. Like, babe, you have the most beautiful cheeks. Well, listen, listen. There's a reason that he compliments her cheeks, okay? Do we need to get through this pretty quick because you guys can't handle this? He does it for a reason because it's, it's, not, it's not taking it further than it needs to go. 
Like he's not being risque, but what he's complimenting, he's complimenting features that are proper within this time in the relationship. This is, this is really important. Okay, he's, he's, again, here's a man who's a God-fearing man who's walking in the way of the Lord, who's doing things the right way. Again, you see his character, which is way more beautiful or handsome, however you want to put it, way more appealing than just his physical appearances, right? And again, physical appearances aren't bad, but they're not everything. And so he continues to tell her again that she, she's beautiful, that her face is beautiful. And what he says here, he says, your neck with chains of gold. And so he's saying not only are you just beautiful, but the way that you adorn yourself, even the jewelry on you, makes you more beautiful. It accentuates your beauty. It's not what makes you beautiful. I want you to understand this, ladies, or even guys. It's not what makes you beautiful, but you're beautiful to begin with, and it just accentuates your beauty because I remember there was a time, and it wasn't that long ago, especially when my daughter was born, I made it a, a, a point as she started to grow up that I wanted her to know that she was beautiful just the way she was, that she didn't have to worry about makeup, that she didn't have to worry about jewelry, that she didn't have to worry about clothes, because we can get so caught up in those things that we think that's what makes us beautiful. And guys, it's different for us. We're not throwing on jewelry, but we're trying to, you know, make our hair perm one way, or, you know, we're trying to wear the certain type of shoes, or we're working out and trying to get ripped. Again, these things, hear me out, these things aren't bad. But when we rely on those, and we think that's what causes us to be beautiful, what causes our, our, our beauty or our, um, our physical beauty, then that's like we've, we've lost something. We've lost recognition of, okay, this is not how God has created me, but he's created me in his image, and, I, and my appearance itself is beautiful. And so I went so far to the extreme that I was like, I don't want my daughter ever wearing jewelry. I don't want her ever wearing makeup, right? I tell my wife all the time that, like, I don't care if she wears makeup because I think she's be- more beautiful without it. Right? And I think even in society, you know, I remember one time, guys, we went to, like, I forget what fast food joint it was. Chick had, like, two inches of makeup on. Like, it was so thick. And I'm like, man, you probably look so much better without all that makeup on. Right? Like, like there's true beauty. But then, then I started to learn, and this was prior to reading Song Solomon. I started to learn, and, and one, one of the gentlemen here who has, like, 1,500 daughters he came up to me, and he, he actually, he doesn't have that many. I didn't want to say how many, so you don't know who he is. He came up to me, and he's like, you know, because we talked about it. And he's like, I, I forget how he said it, but the way that he said it made me truly understand that, like, makeup and jewelry and all these things, they're not bad, right? They're not bad. And so we see that here because it's not a bad thing. It's not a forbidden thing. Like, the Bible even doesn't forbid it. And I want to explain this to you, and I'll, I'll kind of break it down a little bit further. But even in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 9 through 14, I think we'll end here. God is speaking to Israel, okay? God is speaking to Israel in Ezekiel chapter 16. This is what he says to Israel because he always refers to her, again, as like the bride. And so he says, Then I washed you in water, yes. I thoroughly washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in broidered cloth, and I gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists, and a chain on your neck, and I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. 
Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. I think one thing that we can glean from that is that our true beauty comes from the Lord to begin with, right? It, it truly comes from the Lord. But the second thing that I see from that, and we're going to see even in the New Testament, is that this, these outward appearances, the things that we accentuate our beauty with, that doesn't provide us beauty, but accentuates it, they're not bad, right? They're not bad. But when it becomes a preoccupation, or when it becomes the thing that we define our beauty, then that's when it's bad. Because ultimately what Christ tells us is that our inner person is what matters, is what's more beautiful, it's what's more desirable. And so in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says this in verses 3 through 5. He says, do not let your adornment be merely outward, right? Do not let it be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. What does he mean by that? That it's okay. That it's okay to arrange your hair, wear gold, put on fine apparel, but again, what did he say? Don't let it be merely outward. Don't let it only be what's on the outside. But he says, rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Do you know why the inner person the hidden person of the heart, the incorruptible beauty, which is a gentle and quiet spirit. Do you know why that's more important? I think there's a couple things. The first thing is that we really can't control our appearances. And ultimately, God really doesn't care. I mean, he says that to, about David. He says, look, God doesn't look at your appearance. He doesn't look at the outward, but he looks at the inward, right? Because that's who the true person is. Because ultimately, what's going to happen? Our, our bodies are going to go old. They're going to decay, and, and that's that. And over time, what you once, when you once were beautiful, it becomes saggy and old and wrinkly, and you can't really use your body anymore, right? You can't walk. You lose your hair. You lose your muscles. You lose your teeth. Your nose gets bigger. Your ears get bigger. Like, all these things happen, right? But what, what can actually not fade? What actually gets better over time is the inner person, and that's why I said to you guys last week that, you know, with my wife, it's every, every day I can, I can wake up and say, hey, my wife is more beautiful today than she was yesterday because it's not merely the outward appearance that I'm attracted to, but it's, it's the inward person. And the more I get to know her, the more that she grows, the more beautiful she becomes. And it's no different, listen, it's no different than Christ. It's like the more that we get to know Christ because you will never get to a point where you completely understand him and know everything about him, but the more that you get to know him, the more beautiful he becomes to you. I think it gets us to a point where we're like Miss Diane and we can't but do is shout hallelujah at the top of our lungs. But again, it talks, it's about an intimacy. It's about getting to know Christ and who he is. And, and God, unknowing God, it's, it's, it's endless. But again, it, he becomes more amazing and more beautiful the better we get to know him. And so the real question about all this is what do we depend on to make ourselves beautiful or to make yourself beautiful. Again, none of these things are forbidden. You know, Peter doesn't say like you shouldn't do these things, right? Ladies, wear makeup, put on, you know, uh, necklaces and earrings and do your nails. Like those things are all fine. Guys, go to the gym, wear necklaces, wear earrings. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not. Don't do your nails. That might be weird. 
wear the cool shirt, shoes and shirts. And, but again, there can become a point where it's, it becomes our identity. It becomes who we are. And I think that's when, when Peter's like, okay, that's when you've allowed it to be merely outward. And he says, that's when it's not good. But rather, it's, it's the hidden person of the heart. Right? It's the hidden person. That's your true beauty. And again, he describes it as incorruptible. Right? It does not decay. It does not get worse with age. And I love that. And so the beloved here, the beloved here is saying, again, you know, the, the pharaoh's horses, even they adorn themselves with ornaments and jewelry. And why did they do that? Well, to, again, accentuate the beauty they already had. I mean, they were majestic. They were beautiful. The stature was amazing. And so he's equating, again, to the Shulamite woman that you too, right? You too. And again, we talked about this earlier, but again, the Lord, how does he view that word appearance? Well, again, appearances aren't everything. And I think really to the Lord, they mean nothing. Because it says this in 1 Samuel 16, 7. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Mm, you ever thought about that? Aren't you so thankful for that? Because again, what can we not do with our, our outward appearance? We can't control it. For a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I love that. That's something that, that can be changed. That's something that, that in, in essence can be controlled. That you have, you have some type of input when it comes to that. And so the example that we get with um, you know, using the outward appearance as the only thing, and we see it going wrong, is with Saul. You guys remember Saul when he was chosen as king, when he was picked? What was so unique about him? He was tall and he was handsome. The Bible says that he was like head and shoulders taller than everyone else. And he said, the Bible says he was handsome. It says in 1 Samuel 9 2, and he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person that he among the children of Israel, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. I really thought that was talking about me until that last part. <laughs> Just kidding. Now, is it bad to be handsome? Is it bad to be beautiful? Is it bad to be tall? No, it's not. But do you think that's a good reason to choose a king? Only? Is that the only thing that we should base our king off of? Is that the only? Th Why? Why not? Because what if he sucks as a king? What if he's stupid? What if he's unjust? What if he's not fit? What if he's not organized to do what a, what a king is responsible to do? Have we thought about this when it comes to election time? Like, oh my gosh, we want a woman to be in office. Let's vote for her. Well, fine, if she's got the qualities and the values that are good, right? But sometimes, like, our world is just so caught up on appearances that we want the first, you know, Filipino, or can that even happen? Filipino president or you know, we want the first woman, we want the first trans, or we want the first, and it's like, my goodness, that has nothing to do with what their job title, or their description, what they're responsible for. And I say that because then look at, let's equate it to relationships and marriage. Is that the only thing we're looking for within a spouse? Because if, if the physical appearance is not fit to hold office, it's not fit to be a king, then it's not fit to be a spouse, if that's the only thing we're basing it off. Now again, if the person is handsome and beautiful and tall, but they have good character, they have good values, good morals, man, you, you found the whole package, good, run with that. 
right? And I truly believe, too, that at the end of the day, when you find your spouse, that you will think all those things regardless, that you will think that they are the fairest of them all, that they are the most handsome of them all. And so Saul was chosen as king, and he was one of the worst kings. He did okay at the beginning, but do you know, do you know what, what ended up happening? He was tall and he was handsome, but he wasn't faithful. He wasn't faithful. And his fall was great. It was pretty bad. And there was a lot of consequences to that and things that, that had to be sorted out in the end. But here's a man who was just chosen based on his appearance, who was noticed, I would say, even just for his appearance, but he fell because he wasn't faithful.